seven. This is our seventh Sunday now in this space, in this online world, gathering together alone. And it's odd, right? At, at least I hope, <laughs> despite all that we're doing to attempt to bring our Sunday experience into this little box, I, I, I hope that it still feels odd to you that that the idea of being together across time and space, but not together, is odd. Seven. We're strewn about the globe at the moment as a community, from Singapore to London, from Portland to Delhi, and, and many of us still are here in Seattle. And yet somehow through this, we're able to gather together in spirit, with affection and love with hope for a, a new day to emerge, knowing that, that it won't quite be the same, that now and forevermore things will simply be different. See, seven weeks is enough to change us, to, to change how we see the world, how, how we see each other and ourselves. And the, the reality that we're staring down is that these seven weeks apart, they're only the beginning. In many ways, we've, we've only just begun, and, and I know, I know that can cause a lot of consternation, a lot of deep sighs of grief and darkness, but I simply want to be honest with you, to be a realist, to show you what, what we're seeing and what we're thinking. And while there will come a day that our stay-at-home order will be lifted, we're not exactly sure when the gathering restrictions and the guidelines will be eased. There's a new reality we're staring at, and I want us to see it with open eyes and begin dreaming about and embracing the possibilities for what lie ahead. This, this past week, Bon Iver released a new single, P-D-L-I-F. And in the lyrics, there's a plea and a repetitive line of hope. Please don't live in fear. There will be a better day. Please don't live in fear. There will be a better day. It's a great refrain, right? And, and while I truly do believe this, I, I want you to know that it's not blind optimism. It's not glass half full sort of thinking. No, 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 no. This, this is the thinking of those who sit in the wake of Eastertide. It's the thinking of those who have experienced the fullness of Christ's death and destruction, only to be met by a wave of hope. And renewal, of possibility and rebirth, building and emerging all around us. There will be a better day, and, and we, you and me, and those we invite to be a part of this, we all have the opportunity to begin building it right now. This is what this new series we've entered into is all about, signs of life. All around us, there are signs of life emerging, blooming, coming into being. Waves of hope and renewal, of possibility and rebirth, building and emerging all around us, inviting us to be a part. And we stand in full view of it all, only squinting, straining, longing to see this new life and what it's all about. 
with Jesus standing before us, pointing and motioning for us to step in more fully to this new world that is emerging before us. Sometimes this new life that is emerging is is a little further off in the distance than we realize. It's, It's out there along the horizon, seemingly too far to view, too far to recognize, too far to identify or even believe is possible. This, this is the faith of Eastertide. And, and this is part of what John is trying to communicate to us in the second miracle, in, in his telling of the story of Jesus. Jesus was coming back home after being on the road for nine months rejoining familiar faces and places after nine months of intentionally creating a stir in Jerusalem, performing miracles, healing people, speaking to and challenging religious leaders. And after this nine-month work trip, you'd think that he'd be pretty exhausted, right? I would be. After nine months working on the road, but instead, there's this sort of welcome party that emerges for Jesus. It's, it's like the local kid made good. He's, he's home now, and, and now he's famous. All that stuff that he did in Jerusalem, the, the teachings, the conversations, turning the temple courts upside down, the miracles, this, this news had made it all the way back home. And people wanted to see the local kid who had turned everything upside down. There's always a sense of pride for the local kid, right? I mean, we've got statues all around our city honoring our local heroes, Jimi Hendrix and Chris Cornell. There's, there's a wing in the Mopop reserved for Nirvana. We love ourselves some Death Cab and, and Brandy Carlisle, Sir Mix-a-Lot, and, and, and yes, even Dave Matthews and Macklemore, Rain Wilson, Chris Pratt, Elliot's favorite, Dove Cameron just to name a few. And and we want them to do well because it reflects on us, right? We we champion them. We we stick up for them because their success is somehow our success too. And now Jesus has that kind of reputation. And the crowds were excited to see him, to to get a glimpse of the local kid made good and, and, and throw him a welcome home party because his success was their success. He was putting them on the map. And Jesus made his way into Cana, the site of his first recorded miracle, the one where he turned water into wine and announced to his disciples and the wait staff that something new was on the horizon and that they were all invited to the party. The news of his arrival made it all the way into the upper echelons of society. Now, there was this certain royal official who came from some, some 20 miles away to see Jesus. Let's call him Charles, because nothing says royal official like the name Charles. That's for you, Carlos. Now, Charles worked for King Herod Antipas, a, a shrewd politician who, who wielded tremendous power, who, who ruled all over Galilee in the name of Caesar Augustus, and then Tiberius. And then Caligula, three different emperors. He was a guy who knew how to make nice with power in order to hold on to power. And Antipas, 
would have a strange sort of intertwining and, and distant relationship with Jesus. It was his dad, Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus as a baby, making a decree that all the firstborn boys under the age of two slaughtered. Now, all because he feared this newborn baby Jesus was a threat to his power, his throne. It was Antipas who, who would eventually behead Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And, and at one point, Several religious leaders from the group Jesus challenged most frequently actually warned him that Antipas was trying to kill him as well. And Antipas, he'd be the guy at the end, working with Pilate in the eventual crucifixion of Jesus. You see, Antipas was this power broker in Galilee, the guy who could get things done, the guy who could fix things. He was a, he was a great builder, a great administrator, and and his palace was full of royal officials, like Charles. Guys who could get things done in the name of the king. There, there just wasn't much they couldn't do. Charles. Charles knew power. He, he was close to power. Held power. And here's Charles traveling over 20 miles to plead with Jesus. To beg for something that Antipas and all his power couldn't provide. And I'm sure he tried, right? I'm, I'm sure Charles worked with all the best doctors, all the best healers and soothsayers. I, I mean, who wouldn't, right? His son laying on his deathbed. Fever spiked through the roof. Only days to live. Of, of course, Charles is wielding everything at his disposal, all his power and authority and influence to fix things, to, to demand they make his child better. And when it doesn't work, and stories of a miracle worker make their way from, Jer from Jerusalem, becoming palace intrigue, and now he's only 20 miles away, it's time to use your power again, right? to march up to him and demand he make your child better. But Charles doesn't demand. He finds Jesus, sure, but, but he begs. He pleads with him, make my child better, please. Which would be quite a scene, right? A royal official at the height of power, wandering through streets and towns with desperation in his voice. Where can I find him? The miracle worker, a giant scavenger hunt without Google Maps or GPS, no texting or phones. He's playing the old school game of hide and seek to find Jesus begging and pleading with desperation along the way to save his child. And when he finds him, please, Jesus, please. And you can just see the anticipation in the crowd, the excitement. Oh, snap, Jesus is going to do something awesome here. They get to witness firsthand what they'd only heard about from Jerusalem. And Jesus turns to them all and says, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. And here's Charles, waiting. Waiting for Jesus to finish his rebuke of the crowd. A crowd that's only looking for entertainment. Charles isn't used to waiting for others. He, he's used to them getting right to work. He's, he's used to things getting done. 
And I've got to believe Charles is, he's getting a bit impatient here, right? I mean, his son is dying. He's, he's at his wit's end. He's, he's traveled. He's begged. He's pleaded. He's put himself out there. And Jesus is starting in on a lecture to the crowd. I, I mean, I, I'd be impatient in a situation like this. Wouldn't you? And Charles, who, who knows how power works, you, you can just see him waiting for the right moment to interject, to plead. To communicate the gravity of the situation. Lord, come down before my child dies. And, and I know it, it, that if you're looking at your Bible right now, m- most of them say, Sir, come down before my child dies. And, and I understand why the translators responsibly chose that word. And, and we can talk about that if you want. But, but I think there's something else going on here that makes understanding the word Lord, which is what's actually found in the Greek, really important. It's a word that imparts power. You see, Charles is before Jesus, pleading with him to save his son because he knows, he understands, he acknowledges the power that Jesus has. Charles, someone someone familiar with power, recognizes power, and he sees it in Jesus. Save my child, Jesus. Please. I I know you can. And Jesus looks at this man who has submitted his power, who has exhausted all his own power, and says, with, I believe, a brilliant balance of tenderness and mercy with, with power and authority. Go back home, Charles. Your son will live. And Charles believed him. He left and headed home. Now, I'm not sure that I could actually do that, leave without any assurances. I'd probably say, hey, thanks, Jesus. That's really awesome. But let's go anyways. What do you say? Hey, hey, come with me. I'll even cook a meal for you, just for your trouble. But Charles, he understands power. He understands that when power gives a decree, Something happens that the one in power doesn't have to be present. They only have to say the word. And from 20 miles away, Jesus gave the word. And the boy's fever broke. I'm astounded by Charles's faith, his belief, but also his understanding of power. That power can change things, save things, make things better, even at a great distance. Which is such a timely thought for us, right? We who are stuck, distanced from one another in this time of quarantine. Which is really working here in Seattle, by the way. And I get it. This this tension, this, this feeling of powerlessness. Especially in a community when the very idea of difference-making is scrawled in the words of our manifesto. We bring together people from diverse backgrounds and spiritual beginnings, confident that together we can inspire one another towards a positive engagement in this world. We experiment. We try new things. We fail. All along the way, writing new stories of hope and love and justice. We're dreamers 
artists, activists, and faithful friends who will not give up on who Jesus has called us to be and do together. But this idea of creating change at a distance through the power of Jesus isn't actually new to us as a community. We've already been engaged in this. You remember Sam and Kelsey Wake and their adorable kids? Sam came in December to United to speak and share the work they're engaged with in Portland. And we surprised them with our big give, the the one-time offering we collected to help them get a new church in Portland off the ground. And to all of our surprises, we came up with over $11,000. It was perhaps one of my proudest moments in my over 20 years of being a pastor. In fact, I, I shared this story with a lot of my pastor friends, and, and they're just dropped. It was absolutely brilliant and fun to get to brag on you all, to, to people all around the country. Well, at the beginning of this week, I, I, I got this text from Sam. United saved us this year. Even from a distance, we still have the power to create change to make a difference through the power of Christ. From a distance, we helped launch, sustain, and save a church. I'm sure you're aware, but but these are perilous times for churches around the country. Many are, are strained to the max. Pastors are losing their jobs. Churches are making difficult and excruciating decisions, wondering how much longer they'll make it. And at the end of last year, this was no different for Sam and Kelsey. And from a distance, the power of Christ, through your generosity, saved them. These are the signs of life that are emerging around us during this Easter tide. The hope and beauty that's springing forth and emerging in our presence, inviting us to come in and be a part. And I know we're stepping in, but but sometimes it's good to remind us of the good things that are happening, to inspire us to, to press forward into these signs of life. Like the way Mark and Anna and Penny and Jen and Joe and Nicole and Kurt and Tracy and others are, are still working from a distance to bring meals and encouragement to our Safe Harbor neighbors. One of our neighbors at Safe Harbor sent me a note earlier this week to say thank you. And she misses seeing our faces, but appreciates the notes of encouragement that are scrawled atop the meals. Our, our Adopt-A-Family initiative continues to show families and individuals and our local businesses encouragement and love in the midst of this season. They are all so appreciative. And this is just what we're doing together from a distance, not, not even mentioning the things that you're doing on your own. Like Mike, preparing and serving meals and creating hygiene kits for the homeless. Or Joe, caring for her neighbors, coordinating meals and and grocery delivery. And I know this is just the tip of the iceberg. There is so much more happening. So many more beautiful stories that are emerging, that we're writing, that we're scrawling. And, And this is the power of Christ at work within us. This is Easter time what it means to bring into view this new creation that Jesus talked about. May we continue. May we continue to step boldly into this space from a distance, creating new life and change through the power 